to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am your host, Charles Peterson, and I am sitting here with Lee M. Johnson and Rickety Rick Lee. And today we are going to be enjoying Ina Kleiner Nietzsche, as it were, a little bit of Nietzsche, a selection <laughs> from A Genealogy of Morals. But first, let's get some drinks and let's get some rants and raves. Lee? So I am going to have my usual, a Fireball and Diet Coke, and I'm just going to jump into my quick rants and raves. This week I am ranting about veterinary costs. <laughs> Our dear 13-year-old lab, Molly, had what we think was a mini stroke last week. She's doing great. She's recovering really great. And so we're obviously happy about that. What we are not happy about, however, are the vet bills. (laughs) And I have to say, you know, like I spent so much of my life trying to get to the point where I could afford human medical insurance. (laughs) I'm not sure that I can also afford vet insurance. But man, that'll put a dent in your bank account real fast. So... I am raving, however, about the magazine Wired. So Wired is a tech magazine, but not just a tech magazine. It also talks about entertainment and culture and politics as well. I particularly love the print version of Wired. You can, of course, read Wired online at wired.com. But I get so excited every month at the beginning of the month when I get my physical copy of Wired. It has great long-form journalism. It really is able to situate advances in technology inside of cultural trends and political trends. And I've been keeping my copies of The Wire for the last six years or so. And I was just recently putting them away in a box. And I was looking through them and just, you know, looking at the covers and the title stories. It's such a great archive of our lives. So, yeah. I want to recommend Wired to everyone. All right, Rick, what are you having and what are your rants and raves? Noel, I'll have a French 75, please. I'm in the mood for one of my fancy cocktails. This week I am ranting about pulling your mask off too soon. Oh my God, yes. No Chicago lifted its, its mandate that we wear masks indoors. And the day that mandate was lifted, everyone just ripped those masks right off their faces and are walking around like BA2 doesn't mean shit. Right. <laughs> I think we should get used to having our masks with us and maybe exercising a little precaution. I think it's one of the simplest things we can do to prevent this further spread of this. Mm -hmm. I am raving this week about the soundtrack from the Apple Plus TV series, Ted Lasso. I love that show. So Lee raved about the show itself on a previous episode, and I have been getting into it on her recommendation, and I just think the music on that show is just perfect, and I want it to be the soundtrack of my own life. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Charles? What are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about? I am having a cherche, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which I'm probably not. And I normally don't drink cognac, but this is a lovely cognac VS drink with a little bit of grenadine syrup and club soda. I feel like me and Rick have become sort of um, booze brothers. <laughs> dandy brothers. I dandy think. brothers. The brothers dandy. <laughs> you guys are fancy. Fancy like apple bees. Oh, my rant is the inattentiveness of my fellow co-hosts. <laughs> Are we reopening the burn center this week? I have been cleanly shaved for the past two weeks and no one has said a word. My beard, which was gone before, but also my mustache is gone. I look veritably 15 years younger and not a single co-host have said a word about it. So thank you for caring about me, Lee and Rick. Thanks so much. You know, I will say that I did notice that something was different. But for listeners, he has on a bright orange shirt today. And I had to to just assume that it was the the sun 
sunshine of his shirt that was making me think that he looked I different. just assumed Charles wasn't available, and so we got a guest co-host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. My rave is what Mark Anthony Neal has termed the new black manhood. And we have probably passed this, but I want to give a big shout out to Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, for the amazing love that he gave to Supreme Court appointee Kentaji Brown Jackson after a brutal racist and sexist dressing down that she received from Senate Judiciary Committee representatives from the Republican Party. And the way in which he so affirmed her, gave her so much energy and love and spirit. I know every single black person I know was infuriated by her treatment. And every one of us glowed with such pride based upon the way in which he lifted her back up. So I want to give a big shout out to Cory Booker for his willingness to be open, vulnerable, sensitive, and supportive of a black woman. All right. So guess who's in the hot seat today? That would be Dr. Lee M. Johnson. Lee, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about where morality comes from, where the moral subject comes from. And we're going to do this in a bit of an unusual fashion for us. So we're going to take as a kind of anchor for this conversation, one particular section from 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals. We're only going to be looking at two pages. It's section 13 of essay one of The Genealogy of Morals. And this is not an episode on Nietzsche. This is an episode about the account that he gives there about where morality comes from and how the moral subject is constructed. I find this a really fascinating answer to a infinitely fascinating question. I sometimes say to my students, you know, where do moral values come from? We have all kinds of values. We have aesthetic values, economic values, mathematical values, scientific values. Moral values are just one kind of value. Where did they come from? I mean, they don't grow up in your garden like broccoli. Where do you get your moral (laughs) values? It's a hard question to answer, I think. And Nietzsche wants to give an origin story, a genealogy, of where what he calls popular morality comes from. And he's talking about largely the moral values that we inherit from the Abrahamic tradition, from the three monotheistic religions. But there's so much packed into this one little section that covers so many things philosophically, how we think about morality, moral values, and moral subjectivity. So responsibility, credit, and blame, and so on that I think this is a good anchor to use for this conversation. So today we're talking about morality, moral subjectivity, and Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Let me ask this broad question. So the title of the work that this selection is from is Genealogy of Morals. So what exactly are we talking about when we say a genealogy of morals? Well, I mean, I think that Nietzsche is just talking about where, again, what he calls popular morality comes from. And obviously, if you're asking that question, there's embedded in it the presumption that what we call popular morality has not been around forever. Like I said, it doesn't grow up in your garden. And so it must have been invented at some point in history. And the larger text of the genealogy of morals really does try to give an extended argument locating that origin of popular morality in the advent of the three Abrahamic traditions. But yeah, what he's giving is the line of descent that got us to the popular morality of today. So, Lee, when you were introducing our topic for today, you referred to this section as, I I forget your exact words, but something like an origin story. How much of this does Nietzsche intend as an actual account of the origin of human morality? And how much of it is just an analogy or a metaphor? You know, the story about the birds of prey and the lambs, and then to relate that to human beings and where our morality came from. Is this a serious account or is this just meant to be a kind of, well, maybe thought experiment? So that's a really good question. And I think that as in most of Nietzsche's writings, it's a little bit difficult to separate the true account from the metaphorical account. But I don't think that it being infused with 
metaphors makes it unserious. Sure. So I think that this is a very serious account of the origin of what he calls popular morality. Right. So a very specific formation of moral values. And if it's okay, can we just jump right into the metaphor that he does give about the lambs and the birds of prey? Yeah, please uh, do. Because Nietzsche begins this section by saying, if we saw birds of prey swooping down and picking off lambs, we would not really think twice about it, but, you know, because that's what birds of prey do. They predate and lambs are their prey. He says, but if the lambs could speak and they had a little lamb meeting and they were like, what's going on here? What can we do about this? They would probably say, why are those birds of prey coming around and just picking us off all the time? You know, we're good. We're nice. We're cute and fluffy and fine. And so whatever's the opposite of us, whatever's doing us harm, that must be evil. They must be doing something wrong. Now, Nietzsche says, of course, lambs are going to say that. They're the prey. But the predators are not saying the same thing about the lambs. The birds of prey are not looking at the lambs and saying, oh, the lambs are evil. Therefore, let's eat them for the dinner. The birds of prey are saying the lambs are good. They're delicious, in fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think he presents this story to make us think about this question. Why is it that in all of the rest of nature, in the world of objects, in the world of non-human animals, we would think it is, as he says, just as ridiculous to expect strength not to express itself as strength as to expect weakness to express itself as strength. In all the rest of nature, we say that would be a ridiculous demand, but we don't do that for human behaviors and interactions. So in the human world, we have this set of values. We're just going to call it popular morality that thinks that it's not ridiculous to expect strength not to express itself as strength and or weakness to express itself as strength. And in order for that to happen, right, there has to be a lot of philosophical work that has to go into creating a world that is meaningful in which that makes sense. Because again, this is really important. It is not what we think of all of the rest of reality. So in that then, one of the worries I have is on the one hand, Nietzsche's argument could be prey to a naturalistic fallacy. In other words, that because nature does this, therefore, why shouldn't we also say the same applies to humans? I mean, Nietzsche in this section, and Lee told us that we have to stick to this section. <laughs> handcuffs. We have handcuffs. <laughs> but in this section, the analogy or the metaphor seems to point us to thinking about whether there is a difference and what that difference might be between humans and all the rest of particularly nature, maybe a larger reality in general. And I'm wondering if there is a difference between humans and the rest of reality, then what do we do with Nietzsche's argument here? Well, if I could just jump in real quick about the naturalistic fallacy point, because I don't think here, just in this opening metaphor, that we're getting an argument. We're just getting a description of a difference, right? And I don't think that Nietzsche is saying none of the rest of reality is governed by morality. Therefore, humans shouldn't be governed by morality. He's saying like, look, we would think that to say of the rest of reality, the kinds of things that are infused with moral claims that we say about human beings and human behaviors, we would think it's ridiculous. You know, when I watch a David Attenborough nature documentary and I see the lion eat the antelope on the Serengeti, I don't think that the lion has done anything morally wrong. I say that's just the relationship of predators and prey. But if I'm sitting on my front porch and I see a big guy come and bully a little kid, I think that it shouldn't be that way, right? So I don't think that Nietzsche so far is making an argument. He's trying to say, why do I think that? How did I come to think that? Is Nietzsche suggesting a certain sort of essential kinds among human beings? Like that there are strong people who are just naturally strong and there are weak people who are just naturally weak? I mean, aren't there? Isn't that the case? I mean, it is the case, right? That some people are stronger than other people. Some people are smarter than other people. Some people are uglier than other people. 
Right? That, I mean, that just is the case. We're not all the same. Not all the same, but his definition of what's strong can be seen as fairly narrow and fairly limited, and that there may be other examples of strength that he's not accounting for. Okay, so let me say this, and this is why I, I, I put the handcuffs on my co-host to stick to this <laughs> section, is because I think that we all know that there's a lot of problems in Nietzsche's <laughs> philosophy writ large, right? And I don't want us to read the prejudices that we have about Nietzsche's own prejudices into this account. And it's entirely fair for you guys to protest that, like, I'm really putting the blinders on this. But I do think that this is a very short section. It's only two pages. And there's so much here that if we just take it as an independent essay, that there's a lot of interesting questions that we could ask. So whatever Nietzsche thinks about how strength manifests, I think we all have to acknowledge that as human beings, in whatever kind of sense of strength that you're talking about, that there are going to be strong people and there are going to be weaker people. Just like in whatever sense of health you talk about, there are going to be healthy people and there are going to be sick people. There are going to be beautiful people and there are going to be ugly people. There are going to be brave people and there are going to be cowardly people. And obviously, all of those value judgments can have many different valences and many different senses. But it is the case that those differences exist. I take your point, Lee, that you're cautioning us that this section in and of itself is not an argument against morality, even right. against popular morality. It's just a bringing to the fore how historically and even maybe evolutionarily did something like morality emerge. Right. But I think that doesn't go far enough just within this section. Because I think when we get toward the end of the section, his main question is, how did weakness become the standard by which we judge morality? He does seem to be wanting to call into question, in particular, the fact that once weakness becomes morality, it appears as if weakness was all along a moral choice and aren't we excellent for choosing it? Okay, so just a couple of things. The, your description is, I think, exactly right. I think that we can't go from the beginning to the end without all the middle pieces. So I think that we have to do that. But maybe just one slight amendment I would make to that last point that you said is that I don't think that Nietzsche is saying that weakness is morality. I think that he's saying that morality makes it possible for weakness to be turned into a strength. So, you know, the example that he keeps giving is that weakness is turned into a moral strength. So weakness becomes strength because of morality. But you're right. I don't think that he's in this section, only in this section, making an argument one way or another about whether or not morality should be or shouldn't be, but simply how it comes to be. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O not an E. Rick is at, at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So Lee, I do appreciate this, and I am going to abide by the rules of this of thought experiment. Who's weak now, Charles? <laughs> <laughs> He's delicious. <laughs> Honestly, do appreciate Nietzsche's attention to the mobility of moral assignment. And I appreciate the fact that he's able to say, look, these values that we've come to accept as being foundational, as being natural, we have to really interrogate that. And we have to think about alternative ways of thinking about assigning moral valuation. But can we talk more about how he's able to get from this point A to point C that Rick mentioned in the previous segment? 
Yes. Yes, we can. I think in order to do that, we have to move to the next metaphor in this section, which is where Nietzsche talks about the lightning and the flash. This is maybe one of my favorite passages from all of Nietzsche's works, where he says, when we see a lightning flashing, we say the lightning flashed as if there is this thing lightning, a subject lightning that did this thing flashing. But clearly, when you go outside at night in a storm and you see lightning flashing, you don't see a subject lightning doing this action flashing, right? Like lightning and flashing are the same thing. You can't separate the lightning from the flash. But if you were going to come back inside and I said, you know, Charles, what did you see when you were out there like a crazy person standing in the storm? You would say, I saw the lightning flash. Now, Nietzsche seems to want to suggest in this passage that because we have to talk about it that way, because we have to say the lightning flashed, because that's how language works, right? He says the seduction of language, you know, makes us think that because we have to talk about it that way, that that's the way it actually is. But in fact, you can't separate the lightning from the flash. Now, from there, this is where we have maybe a big leap, right? (laughs) Because from there he says, and the same is true with what we would call the moral subject. He says, you can't separate the doer from the deed. The doer is just the being, willing, striving, persisting, doing. And when we separate the doer from the deed, we're falling into that same kind of fiction of the lightning and the flash. Now, why is that important? Because when we do that, when we separate ourselves from the things that we do, we have to basically invent this entire world that does not exist in our experience. He says, you know, we invent this entire substrate where a subject or a soul exists and is free to do something or to not do it. Now, that is the first step in the connection between the lambs and the birds of prey story and how we get to the kind of morality that he talks about in the end that is capable of turning weakness into a moral strength. First, we have to have a free subject that we can assign responsibility to, that we can assign credit and blame to. So we're going from a subject that is its doing. There is no separation between the two. There is no choice. There's simply the existence of a thing. Yes? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, this like here's the problem where we're just going to fall into the seductions of language. It's hard to talk about right. it. It's not as if there is a subject that's doing. There's just the doing. Right. There's just the doing. I mean, I don't do we have a word for that type of being? The thing is is that there it's not as if there's that type of being that's doing something. The being Be- is, is the, the doing. doing. All right. right. All right. All right. So we're going from this account of the being is the doing. The action is the subject to this account that begins to say that now we have a being that now can begin to determine and make choices and changes in terms of what the doing is and how we value the doing. So is that what we're saying? Sometimes I say to my students, if I asked everyone in here to point to Charles, what would you do? And of course, everyone points to Charles. And I'm like, but you're not actually pointing to Charles. You're pointing to sitting, listening, wearing a hat backwards, etc., right? Whatever the things that Charles is doing. So that's the first part, right? Is to really reckon with the idea that the subject that is doing the things that you experience is a fiction that you've invented. But the second thing is to make that subject free. And this is the important part. So if I were to say to you, um, could I have not shown up to record this podcast today? What would you say? Yes. But you are here with me right now. You are here with me right now, and we are recording this podcast. Correct? Yes. Yes. Correct. So how could this be happening if I did not show up here for this podcast? The only way that you could explain how I could not have shown up to be here for this podcast today is to invent an entirely fictional world with an entirely fictional Lee Johnson. You see what I'm saying? This is the story that Nietzsche's telling, is that in order to have this free subject, we have to invent this world that, I mean, fictional may be too strong of a word, but it is a world that is not the world of our experience. 
So all of this is, to my mind, metaphysically entirely slippery and yeah. dicey. <laughs> but, but before we get to the metaphysics, let me start here. I think that one of Nietzsche's points, with which I can agree, is that force is just what it does. And so there's nothing behind the thing that force does. Force just forces. So we often talk about X did something, but it's just the doing. I think I can give an account of that, a, a metaphysically rich account of it. But I think also there are a number of philosophers, Moses Maimonides, Leibniz, Ibn Sina, who would show that for everything that does not carry within it the reason for its own existence, that thing relies on something else in order to be. If that thing relies on something in order to be, that means it could either be or not be. And that is possibility. Now, if I then start thinking about, well, what do I mean by possible? I think current modal logicians will say we need a possible world semantics in order to undergird that. And that, sure, if you want to refer to those possible worlds as fictions, yeah, in that they're not the real world, then they are not real. And I would prefer a word like possible rather than not real, because there are a lot of things that aren't real that are also not possible. Can I just jump in here? Because I do think that if you're going to make the language of possibility do this much work, you're talking about the future. Possibility always exists in the future. No. So if you said, let me ask you, if something that is, right, you say it's possible for it to not be. It's possible for it to not be in the future. It is not possible for something that is. It is not possible for it to not be right now. And it's not possible that it didn't come to be right now. So I, I would distinguish two things here. One is, within modal logic, that P is, you can always deduce it is necessary, that P, for the reason right. you just said, right. that given the existence of anything, it's necessary that it exists. Right. But these philosophers that I'm pointing to, rather than talk about possibility in terms of future, they talk about it in terms of if any being does not carry within itself the reason for its own existence, then it relies on something else in order to be. And that means it will always be marked by this fundamental possibility. It could have not been. Yes. And that is only possible by first separating the beer from the being. Separating the doer from the deed in this case is just being. Yeah, because you're saying if something is, and you're separating the X that is and the being, then the X must be reliant on some other being that would make possible the separation between the X being as one possibility and the X not being as another possibility for the same X. Rick, you've got a look on your face. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think that through for a second. I will agree that the metaphysics on this is very, very slippery. I mean, I think maybe, you know, because, uh, all right, are, have we fallen off our bar stools here? Like, are, are we in the weeds? A long time ago. <laughs> let, me, let me back up a couple of steps. So I will grant that what Rick is saying, both in terms of being suspicious of the metaphysics that Nietzsche is laying out here and also being able to give alternative accounts, I can grant both of those. I think that what we might need to take seriously, though, is that both the suspicion and the alternative accounts are themselves products of what Nietzsche is calling popular morality. That is to say, are themselves products of the very Abrahamic tradition that relies on, among other things, creating a subject or a soul or a thing in itself that we can separate from the being, doing, acting, willing, etc. So I'm willing to grant that when it comes to human action, that for me to say, and to go back to the example Lee, you started with, to say that you could have not shown up to record the podcast today, that does seem to rely on a notion of freedom. Mm -hmm. And more than that, a notion of freedom as a cause. 
And I think, you know, already in Kant, we begin to see how crazy that is to talk about freedom as a cause. So Kant's argument is, but we have to assume that. So I'm with you on that. I'm with Nietzsche on that. I'm with you and Nietzsche. The insertion of a free subject does seem to be central to what he's calling popular morality. But what I'm wondering is, is this then just an account of the way things happen to be? Or is this an account of the only way things could have been? I think he's giving an account of the philosophical architecture of popular morality and the metaphysical architecture of popular morality. Again, I think it's very important to remember that morality is just one way of evaluating the world, right? Sure. It's the dominant way for human beings, I think. And I think Nietzsche would probably argue. And so the world is meaningful through the lens of morality, but moral values are only meaningful, only sensible with all of this architecture in place. And I think that, among other things, the free subject, this kind of substrate of a soul or whatever that is free to do things or to not do things is necessary for popular morality. And is popular morality necessary? I don't think so. No, I don't think any value system is necessary. But I mean that in the future sense. Like, could we get rid of this and construct a new moral value system or other kind of value system? Yes. But I think it is necessary in the sense that, as I said before, it's necessary that I recorded this podcast with you today, right? That it could not have been otherwise. Whatever is, is necessary. You saying that, Lee, gets, I think, to my actual point where maybe I'm closer to Nietzsche than I thought I was. I think the issue here is not possibility, and that was a red herring that you laid out, and I bit on that so hard <laughs> that like <laughs> the hook is down my gullet. Um, <laughs> the issue is not possibility. The point of section 13 is, why did we choose this one? This one what? Why did we choose popular morality? Why did we choose to value weakness rather than strength? But see, that's interesting because I think that's definitely not the question because that question is a popular morality question. Why did I freely choose X? The architecture of popular morality is already in place when you ask that question because that's a question about responsibility. That's a question about credit and blame. Why did I do this instead of something else? Right. Once you posit the free subject, then all of these other questions, the choices people make, accountability. You have to separate the doer from the deed. And, right. Yeah, and, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, maybe the question is, why do we continue to choose it? If I'm already embedded as a free subject that is taking some kind of responsibility for my moral choices, then why do I continue to choose this morality and not another morality? But I'm not even sure that that's not still basically inside of the like architectural cathedral of popular morality. Nietzsche wants to say that talking about being as a subject and not a doing that can't be separated out into a subject and an action that the subject does. That's an invention of popular morality. And it's just to kind of push us forward. Why is that a necessary invention of popular morality? It's because that's the only way that we get credit and blame. That's the only way that we get responsibility is if I can say to someone, you could have done otherwise, you could have been otherwise, then I can hold them blameworthy for the things that they do or are, or I can credit them for the things that they do or are. So let me ask this question. Why is that a bad thing? Nobody's saying it's a bad thing. It just is a thing, right? But here's why I think this is important is that even regular Joe Schmo on the street if you ask him to try to explain what morality is, which, you know, I often do with regular Joe Schmo on the street. <laughs> I'm, I'm just standing in line at the Circle K. I'm like, hey, what do you think morality is? So, I mean, I'm talking about like, quote unquote, popular morality in that sense, like what most people think morality is. There's no account that they're going to give you that doesn't involve this architecture, that doesn't involve a free subject that can be credited or blamed for their actions or dispositions or whatever 
because they could have been otherwise. So it has to involve this separating of the doer from the deed, the accordance to that subject of a kind of freedom or free will, and then a value system of credit and blame from that. Even if Nietzsche is not saying, and this is, again, why I wanted to stick to only this section, even if we don't say anything prescriptively about this, if we just say, is this what popular morality is? I just find this totally convincing. It is. So I, I'm not sure quite how to put this. Uh, what I feel like saying is, yeah, I find it convincing, but I guess I'm struggling to find the big reveal here. Okay. I'm, right. I'm like, okay, but so what? Like, right. Nietzsche is not the first and certainly not the last to question whether agents are free or not. Well, I don't think that he's questioning whether agents are free or not. I don't think that that's the question that he's asking. I think he's saying in what he's calling popular morality, agents are free. I think what you're asking, and that's the interesting question is, so what? What's the big reveal? So what's interesting about being in the bar so often with one another is that discussions keep coming back over and over again. And so I feel like we're on the brink of like a determinism kind of problem here. (laughs) Um, And so let me raise, there is a discussion, and I am not recommending that anyone read this because it is one of the most boring discussions in the entire (laughs) history of philosophy. But an English bishop named Bramall had a series of letters exchanged with Hobbes on the question of whether there is a free will or not. And I think Bramall there gives the point of view of popular morality, as Lee just pointed that out. Namely, if we are not free, then people will do whatever they want because they're not blameworthy. And Hobbes' entire point throughout all of this is, first of all, If people aren't free, then what do you mean when you say they'll do whatever they want? (laughs) But secondly, to ascribe responsibility does not depend on whether someone is a free agent or not. Okay, so two things. One, I don't think that Nietzsche is asking if we're free or not. I think he's just taking it as the case that in this structure of popular morality – freedom has to be assumed. A free subject has to be presumed. Right. I do think that it is the case that the reason that it has to be presumed is so that we can get, as you say, responsibility, credit and blame. I guess my question for you is, how can we have responsibility without freedom? So in a past episode, I mentioned this film, and I I can't think of the title of it right now. I'll put it in the show notes. It's a French film set in the Middle Ages. I think it's called The Advocate. I'm not sure about that. But there is a killing in a medieval French village, and they bring in someone to investigate. And it turns out that in the end, the pig did it. And so they hung the pig because the pig was responsible for the death of the human. Now, there, we're perfectly willing to say, yes, the pig was responsible, and also then apply a punishment. So, I mean, the tracing of responsibility doesn't require freedom. Now, I think you're right that credit and blame are the more important things here. And what I find most interesting about Nietzsche is the way in which he's constantly pointing out how economic terms function outside of economics. They function in morality, they function in aesthetics, and and I think that's a really interesting point. But the responsibility, I think, is not a, a problem at all to trace responsibility to something that isn't free. Yeah, but then I think that we're not talking about moral responsibility. So I will say that I think moral responsibility is about credit and blame. And in the example that you just gave, I think that people who ascribe to, quote unquote, popular morality would say, yeah, of course, the pig was responsible for the death, but the pig wasn't morally responsible for the death. I'm assuming that the pig was doing something that the pig does we as as non-human as we as human animals would assume that a non-human animal had to do or whatever just like you know if the lion eats the antelope on the serengeti i don't think that the lion should be hung i think that that's the relationship of predators and prey 
and that the lion is not morally responsible for the antelope's death. The lion is obviously causally responsible for the antelope's death, but is not morally responsible. Moral responsibility does have to involve freedom. The punishment wouldn't be a moral punishment. And we're talking about a totally different sense of responsibility there. I think that the uncomfortable answer to the question is that it is simply not the case that all philosophers, all theologians in the Middle Ages thought that non-human animals cannot be morally responsible. Yeah. The reason why I say that's an uncomfortable answer is because it seems to call a little bit of a lie to Nietzsche's neat story about the origin of popular morality. That it might be of more recent invention than he seems to be assuming. Like, it might be a, an entirely Protestant invention. Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with that last point, but I will say that you're right, that there have, over the last 2,000 years, been, of course, many different approaches to the moral subjectivity of non-human animals. And I think that if we believe that non-human animals are capable of moral responsibility, moral credit, and moral blame. I think that we are also assuming that they are subjects with freedom. So I think that that's one thing that makes it not dissimilar. But I also think this is a totally contemporary question, right? I mean, mm. the questions that people have about AI are mm -hmm. about when AI becomes a subject, like when we can start thinking about AI as choosing to do something or not choosing to do something, then, you know, can we assign it moral credit or blame? Can we hold it morally responsible for things that it does? But again, all of that is using the same architecture of popular morality that separates the doer from the deed, and treats the subject as a free subject that is, as Nietzsche says, able to express its strength or not. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Let me, if I could just go back to this question, what is the punch here? Like, so what? And it does seem like this middle step of Nietzsche explaining this fiction of the free subject that lies behind the world of our experiences and therefore creates this architecture in which we can have moral responsibility, in which we assign moral credit and blame. What's the point of that? And just to kind of jump to the end, the point of that is so that Nietzsche can explain how it is the case that in popular morality, weakness gets turned into a strength. And... I will just use an example that I use a lot of time in my classes. And I say to my students, you know, if I was walking down the street and Mike Tyson walked up to me and was like, hey, Lee Johnson, I'm going to kick your ass. Right in that situation, there is no doubt who is the stronger person and who is the weaker person. I mean, like there are many ways in which I am a strong woman, but fighting is not one of them. I am going to lose that fight if I get into a fight with Mike Tyson. So what am I going to do in that situation? Well, probably the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say, what the hell? Like, it, what? You're just going to, like, you hit women? Is this what you do? You just go around and beat up on people smaller than you? That's going to be my first response. My maybe second response is going to be to look around at all the people standing around and say, is everybody okay with this? Are you just going to let him do this? Is, like, no, is nobody going to sort of jump in and help me? And like, hopefully what happens is that everybody's like, boo, boo, Mike Tyson, you're a terrible person. Or Mike Tyson says, oh, yeah, you know what? I really shouldn't do this. That Mike Tyson comes to choose to not express his strength as strength because he thinks that that's the good thing to do. And here is where we can see what Nietzsche says popular morality makes possible, 
which is that I, in that situation, through the use of popular morality and all of the philosophical architecture entailed in it, have been able to turn my actual weakness into a moral strength and therefore to credit myself for my weakness and to blame another for his strength. That's the punch. That's the punch of this section 13. Can I just say this quickly? Your second move, Lee? No. People are just going to pull up their phones and literally that shit's going to go viral in about five hours. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And there will be a bazillion TikToks about it. But I worry that that claim is itself based on a different self-deception, namely the self-deception that in terms of force and effecting something, the only strength that matters is something like the ability to hit something hard or lift something heavy or throw something far. And what's not claimed to strength there is your ability to convince others to join you. That that's not a weakness. That's just a different kind of strength. And so, I mean, already in talking strength and weakness, there's already a valuation going on in calling that a weakness versus a strength that I think the whole story Nietzsche here is telling is relying on that self-deception. I think Nietzsche agrees with you totally, Rick, and I think that's exactly what he says. When we're talking about the fight, we're talking about brute physical strength. But in this fight, what I'm able to do is to turn my physical weakness into a moral strength. Then I'm saying Nietzsche's totally stipulating that. He's saying it is a different kind of strength. It's moral strength. It's moral strength that happens through practices other than physically engaging someone. It happens through practices of solidarity. It happens through practices of shame, etc. But like, yeah, it's it's 100% the case that it is a different kind of strength. Right. But I'm understanding Nietzsche is not celebrating that. Like he's critical of the fact that you can turn your weakness, your physical weakness into a moral strength and critical of the fact that this has now become the universal order in which his civilization now exists. I think that's probably true, but I think that we'd have to get outside of this section to get to there. And I don't want to undo the work that we're doing in this conversation by bringing in broader criticisms of Nietzsche, because I think that this is something really important for any who considers themselves a moral subject to think about. Are you ascribing to a morality that, first of all, involves this architecture, and second of all, is in fact capable of turning what in other scenarios we might call weakness into a moral strength? But hold on, but this is that outside of this section, right? Section 13. Let me read this section. No wonder that the downtrodden and surreptitiously smoldering emotions of revenge and hatred exploit this belief in their own interests and maintain no belief with greater intensity that the strong may freely choose to be weak and the bird of prey to be lamb. And so they win the right to blame the bird of prey for simply being a bird of prey. If out of the vindictive cunning of impotence, the oppressed, downtrodden and violated tell themselves, let us be different from the evil that is good. And the good man is the one who refrains from violation, who harms no one, who attacks no one, who fails to retaliate, who leaves revenge to God, who lives as we do in seclusion, who avoids all evil and above all ask little of life as we do the patient, the humble, the just. But that's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, but Lee, come on. Come on, Lee. You can't come say on. that those words are, right. are not like impotent, the vindictive, right. the hateful. Like, yeah, the hateful. Uh, okay, and, I mean, I get it. And I think that, you know, nobody's going to be happy with this answer. But I think that that's because even as moral subjects, we find ourselves quite often conflicted about our own different valuations of strength. Nobody wants to be called weak. Nobody wants to be called sick. Nobody wants to be called ugly or impotent. But some of us are, right? But when I describe to you yourself as weak and impotent and ugly and sick. And I say, that's why morality is important to you. Nobody wants to say that because nobody wants to adopt those evaluations of themselves. This, by the way, also getting outside of this section is what Nietzsche calls ressentiment, right? right? We, we have right. that feeling. But the fact is, is that that is why morality is valuable to us. It is valuable to us because we need it to be in place when we are sick, when we are ugly, when we are weak, when we are downtrodden, when we are impotent. It just seems to be, to my mind, entirely unproblematic 
for you to tell me that I can't bench press my own weight. Like, that's just true. And therefore, to then call me impotent is in fact for you to have a morality in which what is counted as good is the physical ability to bring about the effects you desire, and you call now impotence and bad and hateful a different kind of strength that is also able to bring about real effects in the world, and you call that evil. The very passage that Charles read out is itself based on a morality that values certain forms of strength over certain other forms of strength. I'm not sure who you're assigning that view to, to me or to Nietzsche, because Nietzsche definitely does not say that. Nietzsche is not putting forward a morality. What I'm saying is he actually has to be in order for him to say the things he says. But I think that you're saying that because all of these terms have certain valences within your own moral framework. And I think that when he uses terms like impotent, which can be descriptive in a non-moral sense, in the same way that if I say you can't bench press 350 pounds, that's descriptive in a non-moral sense. You know, next to a person who can do that, you're the weak person. Impotent can be a merely descriptive, by which I mean non-moral descriptive evaluation all by itself. Not in this sense, right? No, he's not, he's not using this in a neutral way. But then I think that, again, that's what I'm trying to say, is that you guys are reading into Nietzsche's passage moral judgments, or character judgments. And the only way to be so resistant to this passage is to read into it. And I think that this is, in fact, what he expects is that all of us weak people are going to be like, no, but I'm also strong. I don't, don't call me impotent. Don't call me hateful. Don't call me downtrodden. I'm not making that argument. I think like you, I appreciate the exercise that he's taking us through in terms of this particular form of self-reflection and assessment of how do we get to certain values, ideas, behaviors. But what I'm saying is the argument that he's doing that without any values, I disagree with. Right. Uh, Without moral values. Well, he's doing it from a very subjective, emotionally invested way. I'll put it that way. But you can't talk about anything without values. I mean, like, you know, anything. I I can't describe your shirt without a value. So value is not the word. What I'm saying is that he is not doing this from a position of complete and total neutrality. No, I totally agree with that. I don't think that, I think Nietzsche would say we quite simply can't do anything without valuation. I agree. He thinks that's what we are, value-creating animals. Right. I think that what he's doing in this section is evaluating popular morality in a way that you find, both of you, morally offensive. No, I find that I just simply don't choose the values that he chooses in order to evaluate popular morality. Yeah, that's I don't, fine. But I don't find him to be morally abhorrent or... Yeah, no, I, I get that. But I think that, I feel like earlier in our conversation, what both of you were trying to do was blame Nietzsche for an argument that he was not making. All I was trying to do was raise this issue that there are values at play, even in this section 13, Right. that I think in section 13, Nietzsche has not yet brought those values to the fore. And that, in a sense, his use of the terms weakness or cleverness of the lowest rank, forgery, self-deception, all of these are not descriptions but evaluations. And they make no sense to me if I don't come at them with Nietzsche's values. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think on Nietzsche's account, I think all descriptions are evaluations. Sure. And... Yeah, of course. This is the difficult part of Nietzsche's perspectivalism, right? That if we don't share a perspective, which none of us totally do, then we're going to be evaluating things in different ways. But I feel like we've kind of slipped off the bar stool in this trying to make Nietzsche right or wrong about something when maybe what I was trying to say is that, I mean, we don't even have to talk about Nietzsche because I think that this account (laughs) is true. I think that there are fabrications, inventions, forgeries, (laughs) imaginations maybe would be a less pejorative way to describe them that are involved in creating the architecture that is necessary for popular morality. Mm, I don't know. I don't think this successfully works if we see it just as a standalone section. 
because he's bringing in materials from previous discussions or previous sections, but not to be able to access those, it, it makes it not work as a solo Well, no, I mean, engagement. I think if we want to make a judgment about Nietzsche as a philosopher or Nietzsche's prejudices, yes, we have to bring those other things in. If what we're talking about is popular morality and the construction of moral subjectivity in the popular morality that dominates our world, then I don't think that we need anything outside of this. But if we just want to dunk on Nietzsche, we can do that. But then I think we're not talking about moral subjectivity and the genealogy of morality anymore. So, Lee, I think, you know, you've convinced me that Nietzsche raises here a really important question about the history of the construction of moral agency as a construction and the work that it does within popular morality. And Nietzsche does it in a particularly vivid way, right? That's one of the beauties about Nietzsche. And I want to recall one of the things you said at the opening, that Nietzsche's philosophy, the style and the content are so neatly intertwined. But then I wonder for you, is there any room for you in your thinking, in your, you know, maybe even everyday life for something like moral agency? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I consider myself a member of the Church of Popular Morality, like most people do, <laughs> you know, because because I'm weak, you know, because I need to live in a place where when I find myself in need of others to not express their strength as strength towards me or, you know, to protect me, then yeah, I'd find that necessary for a society to function. I suppose like for me, what I really like about thinking through this passage is it opens up a lot of questions about the value of moral values. Like what do they do for me? Not what do they do for me? Like who do they benefit and are they good for us as a species? And I think that there are some elements of popular morality that you could easily make an argument are not good for us as a species. You know, this is going to dip our, well, not dip our toes, this is going to plunge right into the <laughs> sea of eugenics here. But mm -hmm. I mean, you could easily say that when you have a human society that is governed by these kinds of values that say protect the weak, protect the sick, protect the ugly, etc., you know, everyone's equally valuable, everyone's free then as a species, that could be harmful, right? Mm. Um, everybody gets dumber and uglier and weaker and sicker if we do that. I mean, that's a question to ask. So if, if I want to say I am not a member of the Church of Eugenics, like how do I say, you know, that po popular morality is good for humanity? But I also think that it really makes us think about the emphasis that we put on the free subject often to the point where the freedom of that subject is more important than what that subject is so-called freely choosing to mm. value or not. And I think that in particular during the pandemic, that question has been put to the fore. Mm. Almost anything can be recast in a way that it deserves moral credit if it waves the flag of a free subject along with it. And that seems to me a serious flaw in our popular morality. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And in saying that, you convinced me of the importance of Nietzsche in general and this text in particular. I will say for the listener that unlike Lee and Charles, Nietzsche is one of my least favorite philosophers. <laughs> and, and I think partly it's because, as has become clear through this conversation, <laughs> I, I don't have an ear for Nietzsche. And I mean that in the way we talk about not having an ear for certain kinds of music. Like Fugazi. <laughs> like Fugazi. <laughs> yeah. Nietzsche is the Fugazi of 19th but, century philosophy. <laughs> but at least I know that given my metaphysical tendencies, given my tendencies towards systematization, that all of the tendencies I have push Nietzsche further away from me when I bring them to Nietzsche's text. So I haven't been a big fan of Nietzsche, but bringing this discussion to raising the problems that emerge from the construction of a free moral subject, I think is 
something really important that we take away. I think you're right, Lee, that without the fiction of a free moral subject, just to, to stick with COVID for a moment, probably it could have been best for the species, as you put it, that we kind of do nothing and just let the sick ones die because then we wouldn't have problems with the variants and, you know, the mutations mm-hmm. and, and so on, you know, but then probably my mom would have died. My aunt would have died. I would have died. Yeah, Lee would have died. And nobody wants that. And listeners who want, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants, wants that. Nobody wants that. I think you're right that there are problems with the construction of a free subject that all the while insisting that popular morality is important, we should also at the same time hold in front of us. No, I think, you know, in agreement with Rick and Lee, I think that's a model that should be used as a constant reflection on the ways in which we address widespread challenges and issues and concerns within our societies. It takes me a little bit to see the leap between the free moral being that popular morality describes and one of these MAGA people who thinks wearing a mask is the ultimate of enslavement. But I can see how that works and it functions and how it blossoms into that type of moron. So I appreciate Nietzsche. I appreciate this conversation for that reason. But because my ear is always one that's within the center of political, social results and effects of what gets said. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's really important to keep the political resonances of what Nietzsche is saying in the forefront. And I think that, you know, just to use two really obvious examples, I think that, you know, when we talk about a popular morality that depends on this ability to turn weakness into a moral strength, we can see many examples of that in the nonviolence movements of, in particular, the last 100 years, which we hold up culturally as morally exemplary. But I think and I think Charles would agree with me here, there are times when that's problematic, right? There are times when it's really problematic to overemphasize turning the other cheek, to overemphasize the moral strength over just that actual brute strength. That's really important. The second thing, relatedly, and I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge what anyone who knows anything about Nietzsche knows, which is that Nietzsche is not a feminist. So, but, (laughs) but Pache Nietzsche... I think that as a woman, this analysis is also really interesting for me in the same way that being enculturated, being sort of raised to be a woman in the culture where moral credit is assigned to weakness, right? Right. So that you should choose to be weak, choose not to be loud, choose not to be opinionated, choose not to be too beautiful, which is a real problem for me. You know, like these are things that you get (laughs) moral credit for. And that's problematic, right? Like, you know, just in the same way I was asking earlier, like as a species, is this morality good for us? I would say as a gender, this morality has been really bad for women. Oh, did those lights just flash or is my inherent weakness starting to show? I think Noel <laughs> wants us to get the hell out of here. So give me some closing thoughts on this topic, Lee. You know, I mean, first of all, I want to thank you both. Apologize for handcuffing you to this <laughs> mere two pages. But, you know, I don't think that it's something that we've done yet in our podcast together, which is just, you know, kind of a close reading. I didn't really intend for it so much to be a close reading of Nietzsche as to open up the kinds of questions that were asked in this section. But I really do appreciate your patience in doing that. I suppose that as a kind of final thought, one thing that I would say is that I do think looking forward, this raises a lot of interesting questions when we start to think about the morality of non-human intelligences, like machine intelligences, and to what extent we are going to require that the same architecture apply in those cases as it does to humans. You know, this is actually decisions are being made right now about how to hold autonomous vehicles legally, morally, financially responsible when they quote unquote make mistakes. So I think that this, you know, these are going to be questions moving forward. And by the way, I think there are also questions that are being re-raised about non-human animals as well as the rest of nature. I mean, 
if this is actually going to be a popular morality, and I think there are many good reasons to keep it around, maybe we need to extend this kind of moral subjectivity to mountains, to, mm-hmm. you know, learning systems, to octopi, for example. All right, Rick? I just appreciate the way in which Lee pointed out for me that my complaining about this section in fact, was a dramatization of Nietzsche's point in this section. And that was a moment of realization I had just like 30 seconds ago. And I, I, I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank Lee for bringing this to our attention. And I, I really appreciate the perfect infinite regress how you know no matter what we said it was like no 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 but that's that's the popular morality so this inescapable (laughs) box that we got placed in in terms of arguing our points was well done well played lee that's a strength all right on that note i think i'm going to call a cab but before i do i'm going to remind our listeners to think about investing a little money to keep this session going at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions all right i'm out of here watch out for those birds of prey (laughs) (laughs) Ha 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 